Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Jamie Weinstein. A recent poll by the New York Times in Siena found that Donald Trump was up in five of six swing states, leading many people to start thinking that there could actually be a second Donald Trump administration. This always seemed obvious to me, but it's becoming, uh, I think, more of a reality, uh, or at least a potential reality, uh, for, I guess, the general media world. Uh, So with that in mind, uh, I have today as a guest, Maggie Haberman, uh, who of course is the New York Times Pulitzer winning senior political correspondent and author of Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. And I think universally considered the best sourced reporter in Trump world uh, to get an insight on exactly what a second Trump administration would look like, what priorities Uh, it would focus on, and what figures might be staffing it. Uh, So without further ado, I give you Maggie Haberman. Getting insight from you, uh, you've reported on Donald Trump, obviously, uh, since he entered political life. Um, What is the difference reporting on Donald Trump when he's in the White House versus um, in the the wilderness, if you will, out of of office? That's a really good question. Um, it, It depends on the moment that we've been in. Prior to his indictments, it was actually... I think a little uh, easier to see in. I mean, you know, we're getting more keyhole views, obviously, than we did when he was president. When he was on Twitter, you know, he he does tens upon tens upon tens of truth social posts every day, um, to the point where they're hard to keep up with. But not very many people are on truth social, so they're not seeing that he's just sort of screaming into the wilderness. Um, to, use your, to use your term. Um, so it's a little different. I mean, in the White House, there were obviously lots of people around. I think that added to his sense of paranoia. The only place that I know of where he's entirely comfortable is Mar-a-Lago. And yet he feels under siege. And because he is so angry about the criminal cases against him and the New York Attorney General case related to his company, which is a civil case, but it could have serious impacts on whether he can continue to do business in New York, whether he can continue to own Trump Tower and so forth. Um, It's hard to see around that level of anger, in part because so many people around him either are afraid of him or want to maintain this veneer that everything is fine and he's in a great mood all the time. Um, But it's it is different. The White House was uh, strangely easier. I want to get into if you've sensed he's changed all, but I kind of want to follow up on the truth social posts. There used to be, uh, you know, you'd read 
all these stories and how he actually tweets. Is it him tweeting? Is it through AIDS? How does he do, do these truth social posts? Is this a strategy or is this just him venting? And who is writing them? Is he dictating them? Is he learning how to, you know, does he type on the phone to, to post the truth social himself? How does that actually work? So for one of the in earlier indictments, it, it is kind of remarkable that there were four in fairly rapid succession between the months of, of March and August uh, earlier this year. For one of the first two, and I don't remember which one it was, it might have been the June one, which was federal, he, he typed out the Truth Social post himself, announcing that he had been, he had been told he was indicted. Uh, you know, and this became yet another information stream that he tried to control, right? I mean, he loves sort of choreographing and narrating everything about his own life. He likes to be the only subject matter expert on Donald Trump. And so he used Truth Social to do it. And, and that one I know is one that he had written out himself. Some of these late night ones are ones that he does himself. Some of them are ones I'm told that Dan Scavino, his longtime digital aide who was in the White House with him, who was, you know, a, a golf caddy years ago at, at Trump's Westchester Golf Club. Uh, he uh, types up a bunch of them and he, I think, presets them. So they go off at, you know, some preset time. So it's it's some combination. And that is, Jimmy, how it worked in the White House, right? Trump was sometimes tweeting at one in the morning. Sometimes other people were drafting tweets and presenting them to him, and then they would all agree on them. It's not, it's not that different. The volume is different. There's just so many of them. And I don't, that I have not been able to figure out what accounts for. And is it, can you tell us it's strategy or venting? I mean, is this something that he needs almost like therapy to, to get his anger out? Or is this a, a strategy to rally his base? Uh, I think sometimes it's a strategy, although, again, I don't think too many people are reading Truth Social, uh, even among his hardest core base. Um, and sometimes it's venting. You know, I mean, he 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 writes about all manner of things. He is a little freer on this site of his own than he was on Twitter. But when he was on Twitter, he was president. He, you know, only was reinstated to Twitter recently. And I think that he was a little more restrained um, because of the office uh, than he certainly is now. I think you discussed it a little bit, but but the Trump in the White House versus the Trump in, as we're calling it, I guess, the wilderness, um, has he changed? In, in what ways has he changed personality-wise, health-wise, demeanor-wise? Is there changes in any of those areas that are, are very noticeable? It's a good question. I, look, health-wise, I don't really know how to answer that. He's obviously a much older man. The job takes a toll on every president. Um, uh, and he, he's an older man who was already not a young man when he was president. Um, but, uh, it doesn't, he doesn't appear noticeably different physically from what I've seen, but I will note that we are seeing him publicly less. He is doing fewer rallies, which his team generally attributes to trying to cost save because those rallies are very expensive to put on. But I would also know that it's energy saving, right? I mean, you're you're less likely to wear out a 77-year-old man with several rallies a week uh, than you are doing them a few times a month or even once a month. Uh, he doesn't need to do a ton of them right now. He's so far ahead in the polls that I don't think they see a huge advantage to it. Um, I have noticed that lately, and my colleagues, Michael Gold and Michael Bender, wrote about this. He is making a bunch of verbal miscues that have been pretty striking. He's not exactly ever been uh, the clearest of uh, uh, of articulators, but uh, uh, or of speakers or of orators. But but he you know he keeps appearing to believe Obama is still president. He confused Orban and Erdogan um, 
I don't know if it's fatigue. I don't know if it's distraction. I don't know what it is, but, um, but that's been a little, a little notable. Does he want to leave that Mar-a-Lago lifestyle for the White House? What is his motivation for running again? Is it a legal strategy to try to avoid going to jail or, or, or losing these cases? Is it to, you know, revenge for what, uh, to, to be seen as a winner again uh, of an election? Um, what, what is his motivation? Or does he generally like the job as president? I never had a sense, Jamie, that he liked the job. I had a sense that he liked the trappings of the job. He liked the title of president. He liked the White House. Um, the scene in the the book that I wrote, Confidence Man, where he is, he was saying at a, a dinner with members of con- Democratic members of Congress um, that you know Congress members only get uh, don't don't get to keep their title for life, but that he does. He'll get called president forever. Um, he's clearly keenly aware of this. He liked Air Force One. He liked Marine One. Um, you know, I, and I think he certainly likes the the power it represents. I think it's some amalgam of everything you just listed. He certainly uh, is mindful that this can afford him insulation legally, whether it's in the form of a self-pardon, which would be challenged in the courts because the law is not settled on that, or whether it's him telling the DOJ to drop the charges, even if he's been, in theory, convicted and sentenced by them by the time of Election Day. Um, But he was talking about running for president again not long after the November 2020 election was called. And so I think it's it's a bunch of different factors. And part of it with him is that he is one of the most uh, regenerative public figures in our, in our country, who I can think of, who have just been on the stage forever. This is a guy who went through bankruptcies that, that other people would have deemed as wiping them out. And he refused to succumb to bad publicity about it and started driving his own narrative home, even though it wasn't true. He would constantly describe himself in bigger terms than he was financially, both in the 80s and the 90s. But in the 90s, he had already gone through these bankruptcies. Um, It's not in him to not find some way to stay part of the conversation. And I think that he is well aware that uh, running uh, gives him some level of prominence and and armor that he wouldn't have otherwise. Just curious, because you mentioned that he, you know, he went, he, mentioned how he will be called president for life. Um, and it made me think, uh, has he made any effort to establish where a presidential library will be? Is he going to build a presidential library like past presidents? Is there any active fundraising for something like that? Well, I haven't heard of anything along those lines. And I know that people who have tried raising it with him have generally gotten dismissed. And that was a long time ago. I don't think that's something that they're thinking of right now. I'm, I'm sure if he loses the election next year, it's something that they will turn to again, but um, he will undoubtedly see it as some kind of cross-brand marketing opportunity. At Trump Tower, the bar that's in the lobby that has been there for a while uh, has been renamed Club 45, and it's filled with all of these pictures, these jumbos from his presidency, um, the biggest one being him and Kim Jong-un. So I, I, I'm sure there will be something along those lines, but not anytime soon. Let's, tur- let's turn to what a, a second... Trump administration might look like. You write in a piece uh, about a second Trump term along with Jonathan Swan and and Charlie Savage. Uh, In a second term, Mr. Trump plans to install a team that will not restrain him. He was unable to craft the team he thought he was crafting while in the White House, picking people that, you know, he thought would do one thing and and turned out, you know, he ended up having to fire them or they would leave and, and trash him. Is he capable of picking a team that won't restrain him? So it's it's a great question, and it's actually uh, along the lines of some conversations I've been having with people close to him in the last couple of days. Uh, he 
he is capable of picking a team that won't restrain him. And that is actually much more what he wants. And I think that he feels like he learned lessons from staffing last time. I don't think that he realized he was picking a team that was going to restrain him. I think he thought that he was picking a team that would please the media or that would please elites or who had, you know, what he considered impeccable credentials because he's a credentialist. Um, But uh, I think he very much does not want a team that will constrain him. I do think that he is extremely fickle. And I think that he is hard to predict about what he is going to want in a staffer. And so he, you know, and, and he loves nothing more than there's a line from the show Succession about how Logan Roy loves nothing more than one seat, two people for the job. Um, that is Trump. And so I don't, the biggest question for this term is staffing. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Are there names that come up when you talk to people in Trump world or talk to Trump that you see as definite figures uh, in the second Trump administration? I think that you will see Cash Patel, who was at DOD and who Trump named as one of his uh, NARA archives representatives last year, Um, although he recently added one of his criminal lawyers to be one of his NARA representatives, which makes sense given some of these cases um, and the discovery material related to them. Um, I think that you will see people like Rick Grinnell, like Robert O'Brien, who was the last national security advisor, is somebody who you could see again. Uh, but more broadly, I think that there are significant questions about who we would see as attorney general, who we would see as secretary of defense, who we would see at the CIA, uh, who we would see as uh, the DNI. These are the these are the agencies that he cares most about, and I think that that will be the biggest question. And and I think that you will see all manner of names floated for that in the next 12 months uh, if he wins. Well, you mentioned some names. I actually have a list of names I was going to ask you about. Um, and, and all of those names that you mentioned were on it. Uh, Robert O'Brien, I thought, had been oddly silent uh, during uh, questions about classified documents where, you know, everybody was either saying, you know, Cash Patel was out claiming, you know, Trump declassified them. Uh, and, you know, others were saying that's impossible. You didn't hear from Robert O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Is that a strategy? On that front, you didn't. You heard him on other things, but yes, not on that. I mean, is that a strategy kind of to to get under the radar so he doesn't, A, lie, like maybe Cash Patel may have by saying that Trump declassified him, uh, but also not upset Trump by negating what Trump wants people to say in order to protect him in the case? I think that Robert O'Brien um, has been pretty careful at walking certain lines where he can maintain influence, but not dive into controversy, controversies that uh, have a, a potential huge downside. Uh, and I, I, I would guess that that's one of them, although I don't know what the motive is. Yeah, people like Steve Bannon, I, I mean, are, are they aiming to get back in the White House or, or you know, what, what is his motivation here? Uh, I don't think that, um, I don't think that Trump would like Steve Bannon back in the White House as much as I think that Trump likes some of what Steve Bannon is saying. That first year was, was, uh, contentious in terms of the relationship between Trump and Bannon and, and the credit taking. And Donald Trump likes nothing uh, more than, um, likes not, sorry, likes nothing less than people who he sees uh, trying to glom onto him and gain something from him that way. I don't, I don't think that uh, Bannon back is a, is a huge likelihood. 
And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. There's been flo- the name floated. Uh, my old boss, Tucker Carlson, as vice president. Is that a, a real thing that you're hearing as a possibility? Or is that you know, floated by maybe people around Tucker. It, no, it's a it's a real thing that I am hearing as a possibility. Uh, you know, the likelihood of it, I don't know. I, I think there will be a, a pretty professionalized um, vetting process, honestly. I know that that might sound unbelievable um, based on what we've seen from Trump historically, but Trump's current political team is is the, the, the best, at least as a non-incumbent that he's had. Uh, and there's just a different level of control. I mean, these are these are people who uh, have been involved in in efforts that that give them a base of knowledge. This is not 2016 again. Um, but I don't think the Tucker thing is not real. Uh, I think that what the ultimate VP choice for a Trump nominee could look like could be very different than what we think. I, I think the risk with the, with Tucker Carlson and Trump is that Tucker Carlson is a very big star in his own right. And I'm not sure how Trump would uh, contend with that. You mentioned, obviously, the, the, the most, maybe the most important role for someone uh, who wants to seek revenge in the next presidency uh, is probably attorney general. Uh, but that has to be confirmed by the Senate. And Trump had sent people he thought were going to be loyal to him mm-hmm. uh, to that post before, Jeff Sessions, Bill Barr, only to find out they were unwilling to do the things that he wanted them to do in part because sometimes they were illegal. Is there is there a name that you've heard that he wants as attorney general? And B, is there a name that you've heard that theoretically could get approved by the Senate for attorney general? Jamie, that's the that's the $64 million question in terms of who could get approved. And so I think those are two separate questions. One is who could get approved, and then one is who he could install as acting while he's waiting for Senate approval. And I don't know who that person would be right now. Um, you know, the 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 name that, that people keep mentioning to me is a, a lawyer uh, named uh, Mike Davis, who has been quite vocal on Twitter, um, who we quoted in one of our Project 2025 stories by Charlie Savage, Jonathan Swan, and me. Um, whether that is something Trump would, would want or not, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think, again, I, I think there are a few uh, uh, staff roles for which Trump has bigger regrets uh, I will say on the Bill Barr front, uh, Barr was equally skeptical about the Russia investigation as Trump. And so, uh, you know, he did a lot of things that that 
Barr was very heavily criticized for, including dropping charges against Mike Flynn, um, that that were very much uh, aligned with Trump's interest. He just didn't say that there was widespread fraud after November 2020. Um, but I have not heard of a name. I have not heard of who they might put forward. Now, I think we'll start hearing in a couple of months. But as of right now, I think it's something that they know they must do and they don't know what to do. Another important role would obviously be Treasury, tre- uh, the Secretary of Treasury, um, which the IRS is uh, within. Uh, and if you wanted to audit people, I guess you, you might uh, mm-hmm. want to have a secretary that would be willing to do that. Um, I don't know if he would be willing to do that, but Steve Mnuchin, is he, is he someone who might return to that role? Uh, I think that's not impossible. Uh, Mnuchin, um, you know, I think that he would face a, a lot of questions um, in, a, in a Senate hearing, et cetera, but uh, in part because of the work that he's gone on to do in investments after the White House. But Mnuchin is somebody who still has a decent relationship with Trump. I think there are a number of people who could come back, and I also think that a number of people who say they never would might rethink it when it comes back to the idea of being back in, in power. Um, how about someone like Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, uh, who obviously is running against Donald Trump, but doing so in the politest and nicest way possible? <laughs> that was really very delicately put, yes. Uh, I mean, is, is he is he someone that could find a role in the Trump administration? Has he been discussed? as a potential vice presidential candidate by anyone around Trump? I have not heard his name mentioned as a potential VP by anybody. And uh, uh, I think it's it's certainly possible he's young and he has fashioned himself in the America First model, which I think is part of what they're going to look for in a VP, is somebody who can push the movement forward given Trump's age. Um, but I have not heard his name. Doesn't, doesn't mean I won't, but right now I haven't. You mentioned uh, a few moments ago, not necessarily for the administration, uh, Mike Flynn, but I guess my question is, is, is it possible he could be picked to come to the White House? I don't think he could be confirmed in the Senate, but could he, could he possibly be? Yeah, he, he could absolutely come in in some kind of a, uh, a, a presidential appointee role. I think Trump has said repeatedly in public that he wants to bring him back in. Um, and I think you raise an important point, too, which is that somebody like Hash Patel, I think, is going to have a very hard time getting through a Senate confirmation, especially in a, in a closely divided Senate, certainly if the Republicans don't take the Senate. Uh, in a Trump presidency, but uh, and even then, I think it would be hard. But Trump could bring all kinds of people in as presidential appointees within the White House, and and I think those two are among them. Uh, one, one other name uh, that I have on my list here is Mark Meadows, which it's unclear whether Trump's upset with him for supposedly turning or he hasn't turned. Is, is he still within Trump world? I mean, is he a potential person to come back, or is he seen as someone who? Um, is cooperating with authorities. I think a lot. Of, I think that the the answer to that question is going to depend on what comes out of trial next year, uh, in the January sixth case in D.C., which I expect is going to be the only one that really goes to trial. Trump's rhetoric uh, on the trail is uh, increasingly totalitarian. Um, he's pledged to root out his enemies that live like vermin. Um, talking about immigrants poisoning, uh, they're poisoning the blood of our country. Um, I mean, he has used kind of some imagery like that before. He always talks about genes and uh, horse races. It's like having a good, you know, you get a, get a good breeding horses. You get a good horse that was a you know great runner before. Where, where does he get this type of rhetoric? Um, you know, how, how did, you know, he, the way he speaks, I've always been interested about Roy Cohn and, and, and the language he gets from him, but how does he get kind of this type of poisoning the blood? It's not a, a thing that 
seems like a common phrase that just that, that you, you didn't read somewhere before. No, look, and I, I mean, a lot has been uh, said about the fact that um, that language is language that echoes phrasing by Hitler, um, you know, or and and there's other language that he's been using about vermin to describe his uh, adversaries that he has to quote unquote root out in the country that also echoes fascists um, through history. Um, look, I, I, he's not a great reader, uh, as you know. Um, he's not a he's not somebody who spends a lot of time on historical texts, um, but he is somebody who reads a lot of social media. And one of the things that he used to do to your question about how truth social posts are are phrased and how uh, uh, Twitter was done is that he would look at the replies to his posts, and I assume he still does that here too, because sometimes you'll see him retweeting or retruthing, whatever we call it. A lot of things, it's often just stuff that he sees in response to himself. Um, or he'll look at trending topics in both cases. And so my assumption is always either that somebody around him said it, uh, or that he read it somewhere and he's skimming it off of, of someone else's language. Um, but, you know, he's no matter, how, no matter how many times he's told what this rhetoric historically means, it, he doesn't change it. And so whether he is intentionally echoing um, some of history's worst villains or not, it, it almost starts to become beside the point. I'm sure you remember, because uh, you've read everything uh, about Trump, the Vanity Fair piece from 1990, where it was about the, his, his first divorce and, uh, I guess, uh, Ivana talked about the book of Hitler's speeches or yes. Mein Kampf that was right. next to his bedside. And I think, I forget which one she claimed. And uh, he said it was the other and it was given to by a Jewish. It wasn't Mein Kampf, it was the speeches and it was given to him by a Hollywood executive he knew who thought he would find it quote unquote interesting. Right. And he claimed it was a Jewish producer and then they went to the producer and he said, I'm not Jewish or something. Correct. I think it was Marie Brenner who went to the producer, uh, the journalist who was, a, was there before many of us with Trump and with Roy Cohn. Yeah, I mean, he did have these speeches. He he does have he does have a, a a history of referencing Hitler. He told John Kelly, as my colleague Mike Bender first reported in his book, um, that you know Hitler did some good things. Um, he would say that he wanted his generals to be like the German generals, which shows a real lack of understanding how um, uh, history went with with Hitler and his generals, but. Um, he just sees it in terms of, he thinks he's talking about toughness and responsiveness. And so uh, the language is, has been um, uh, echoing fascists for a long time, but it has gotten, uh, I think, a lot more explicit recently. What are, what are in, in the pieces you've written uh, about um, what a second Trump term will look like, a lot of, a lot of it is, you know, what immigration policy will look like. Uh, and obviously, you know, his rhetoric is, is very strong, uh, I guess. Maybe that's a polite way of saying it on that. Very harsh, but yeah. Yeah, his rhetoric was similar, uh, at least uh, in some ways, in 2016. And obviously, a lot of immigration hawks, Ann Coulter comes to mind, who wrote a fawning book of him, you know, was, were upset uh, that he didn't do what he said he was going to do. So I guess my question to you is, you know, despite whatever he's saying right now, are there priorities that you know that he personally has that he's going to try to push uh, uh, when he's in the White House? You know, what are the three things that Donald Trump personally cares about? Well, look, we did, we did this big story uh, the, other, the other day, I think last weekend, and um, Trump has been very open on the campaign trail that he wants to conduct the largest mass deportation operation in U.S. history. Uh, he uses Eisenhower's uh, racistly named Operation Wetback as a, as a model. Um, and 
that is, I think, one of the biggest priorities. I think that canceling visas is going to be another massive priority. I think basically trying to restrict both legal and illegal immigration is going to be a massive priority, which was, as you note, uh, not unlike what he was saying in 2016. I mean, when you Google Trump and immigration and some of the same phrases, a lot of what shows up is from that first campaign of his. Uh, and then he was seen as by his hardest line backers as not quite following through. You know, the, the wall certainly did not get built to any length that he claims it has uh, and so forth and so on. But I think that he is, and what we try to convey in the story is, you know, he's still very close to Stephen Miller, who was the architect of his immigration policy. And Miller learned a lot during the presidency. They figured out what, what could work and what, what couldn't and how to get lawyers in who would be more willing to acquiesce to um, interpretations of the law that would let them take more aggressive actions. Uh, those are how I would loosely describe as his priorities. Uh, Trump would repeatedly say when he was president, you know, um, just don't let them come in. Don't let them come in, which is just not a realistic way to approach the border. Uh, but if you asked me what I think his dream scenario is, I think that's it. For, for foreign policy, in a second Trump term, I, I, I go back and forth. Will he be tough on China? I mean, he seems to like Xi, though. You know, he likes the idea of, of Xi coming to Mar-a-Lago and maybe having another dinner. I mean, wh wh what is what is Trump's foreign policy going to look like? I, I mean, it is a, a yet another $64 million question because he really hasn't been talking about it. I mean, he, at this point in the campaign in 2015, he actually had articulated, granted they were sort of id-like impulses, but um, things about, um, uh, he had articulated things about uh, uh, his views on foreign policy. He was starting to talk about NATO and Article 5. He's talking about foreign policy very little this campaign, other than these kind of sweeping and unrealistic statements about Ukraine and getting a deal in 24 hours. I was having a conversation this past week with a former senior administration official who was making the point to your question that Trump's policy on China was articulated really by his hawkish senior officials, uh, Esper, Pompeo, Bolton. Um, Trump's desire was really all based on his thoughts on trade. So what he will do beyond that is a huge open question. And I don't think we're going to have a sense of it until if he wins, he's in office. The case that Trump's reelection would be perilous is an easy one to make, especially after what we saw on January 6th. My question is, is there an optimistic case that you can imagine uh, for a, a second Trump presidency that maybe, you know, this is a guy who doesn't, who wants to be seen as a winner. So he wants to see the American economy succeed. So he appoints people that are not crazy to some of these positions. I mean, I think that for things like the economy, I think that you will see people who, uh, uh, or, or could see people who are not, quote unquote, of that, you know, crazy model that you're, that you're articulating. And, and he had that last time. I mean, Gary Cohn was hardly a lightweight. I don't think you're going to see Gary Cohn in a Trump administration again. Um, and I'm not sure that you'll see another, you know, senior Goldman Sachs official that was pretty controversial at Trump's base. But Trump has always been a little more of a shapeshifter when it comes to things his base wants, because he's a, as, for all the debates about his wealth, he's wealthier than 99% of the country. And he is still a wealthy guy from New York who has certain, um, interests of his own that are different from from some of his supporters. So you could see that on the economy. I just think that when it comes to things like DOJ and the degree to which he is so pretty singularly focused on retribution right now, I think those are the appointments that are going to be a, a more of a question. But w will he lean into the idea, as you're suggesting, that you know, in a general election, I am going to make this 
optimistic case about the economy. Yes, I think that is what he's going to do. And it, it, I keep thinking back to something that a Democratic pollster said to me in September of 2016, which is that they were seeing that Clinton was struggling on, on the issue of the economy. And she was speaking in very granular detail about plans she had. And Trump just kept saying jobs, jobs, jobs at every rally. And it wasn't detailed. But people heard that and it sank in. So let me ask you just to end on this. Um, he's facing a lot of trials, uh, you know, the Jack Smith federal case, the Georgia case. Is there any chance that those trials in, in specifically, from what you're hearing, happen before the election where they actually have either acquittals or convictions before the election? Or are all of these likely to have a verdict after he's either elected or, or lost the election? There is only one trial that I think is going to go forward next year, and I think it's almost a certainty, Jamie. It's the the federal case related to subverting the election, uh, or alleging that he illegally tried to subvert the election. Uh, I I think that Tanya Chutkin, the judge in D.C., has made very clear that she is not messing around. That she uh, she has been very very vocal about her views about January sixth and its meaning, um, and and its impact on the country, um, and on democracy, and. Uh, I think that she is going to want to move forward with that case. And then because of that, I think that Judge Eileen Cannon, the federal judge who Trump appointed, who is overseeing the documents case, which is a much cleaner cut legal case for the government in Florida, uh, I think that one's going to get delayed long for the election. Because he can't, when you're, when you're a criminal defendant, you have to be in court. So it's not like he can, someone asked me recently, well, can't he just go back and forth between the two trials? That it's, it cannot work that way. Uh, they will they will have to schedule around each other. You're already seeing Fonnie Willis, the Georgia, uh, the Fulton County District Attorney, say she's talking about late 2024 at this point. So I think you can assume that it's later than that. And then there's been sort of nary a word about the Manhattan uh, state cr- local criminal case um, about paying hush money to a porn star. And I I don't know whether that one will ever. Uh, push ahead, but it would, it, Bragg, the DA, Alvin Bragg, has made very clear he's going to take a look at all the rest of the scheduling. So there's only one case that I think definitely goes forward, and I do think it definitely goes forward. Maggie Haberman, thank you for joining the Dispatch Podcast. Thanks for having me. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.